Have you ever met someone who was just so kind, so sweet, so full of love, that they just were such a joy to be around? You would just describe them as a warm-hearted person that was just such a pleasure to be in their company. You would describe them as a person of love. I've known a person like this. Interesting enough, the person I, when I was thinking about this, that most readily came to my mind, I'm not even sure if they were a believer. I think they were a believer, but I'm not sure. We just never got around to talking about the things of God. It was actually my manager when I was an usher at the movie theater. I remember this boss was just so kind, so nice. They almost radiated kindness and love. So much so that it was my desire to do a good job not to disappoint this person because it was just so nice. I felt like I always could come to them and talk to them, and they would just love on me. Do you know anybody like that in your life? Put it differently. Would anyone describe you as that person? A lot of people know you. Are you a person of love, of kindness, of warmth? Last question. Should you be? Should people be able to describe you in this way? All right, let's open our Bibles to Second John. Only one chapter. First chapter. And let's look at verses 4 through 6. 2 John, chapter 1, verse 4 through 6. I rejoice greatly that I found some of your children walking in the truth as we have received the commandment from the Father. And now I beseech you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which you had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk after his commandment. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, so you should walk in it. So in that very first verse, verse 4, John begins by saying, I rejoice greatly that I found some of your children walking in the truth. So John tells us that something has brought him great joy, namely that some of the the person he's writing to's children is walking in the truth. Now, for some of you who were not here when I preached the beginning of this passage, uh, the reference to the lady and her children is John speaking in metaphoric language. The lady here is not an individual, but the lady here is the bride of Christ. It is the people of God collectively. And we see this idea throughout the Bible. In the end of the book of Revelation, it says that the spirit says, come. The bride says, come. The bride there is referring to the bride of Christ. Christ died for his bride, which is parallel for the way that husbands should be sacrificial toward their wives. The bride, of course, is a reference to Christ. Excuse me, to the church that Christ died for. So here, the metaphor of a lady refers to the church, and the metaphor of her children refer to the individual members of the church. We are part of the church collectively, but we ourselves individually are the children of the church. So when John here says that he rejoices that he is finding some of her children walking in the truth, what he's talking about is he's rejoicing that he finds some Christians in the church walking in truth. Now, hopefully, we can relate to this feeling how we delight to hear and to see that godly people are doing godly things. 
Recently, I saw someone that I have not seen for many years, that we saw each other and then we hadn't seen each other. And so when you haven't seen someone for a long time, it's called catching up. You start having those conversations. How have you been? How has it been with your soul? How is your family? You start hearing about all that has happened. And hopefully when we're having those conversations, how our hearts should rejoice and leap for joy if we hear that that person is continuing to follow the Lord. Just imagine the opposite. That you're talking and you're chatting and you're finding out about the children, the grandchildren. You're finding out how so-and-so graduated from college, that they've been promoted in their job. All of these interesting things. But then when you get around to asking them, hopefully you are asking them, how is it with your soul? How are you doing spiritually? What if you find out that they haven't been in church for years? That they have deconstructed? That they have walked away from the faith? Hopefully that would break your heart. Why? Because if they got promoted, if they had children or grandchildren, if all is well with them outside of their spiritual condition, what profit is that? Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul? What can man give in return for his own soul? So if everything is prospering well for people, but yet spiritually they are sinking into the pit of hell, there is no profit, there is no value. Our heart should be where Jesus is, which is in heaven. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. And so if we want to find ourselves rejoicing to hear that people are doing well spiritually, the only way that we're going to do that is if our hearts and our concerns are in the spiritual places. If we're interested in spiritual things, then we'll be concerned that other people are interested in spiritual things, and we'll be concerned about other people's spiritual condition. And Jesus talks about this principle that I'm referring to in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew 6, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So there's a principle here. Where your treasure is, there will be your heart. And so if you want to be concerned about other people's spiritual condition, you first need to be concerned about your own spiritual condition. And your treasure needs to be in heaven, and then your heart will be there, and then you'll be concerned about others, about where they are. And if you think about, what is your treasure? He says, Jesus tells us, where your treasure is, your heart will be there. But what is your treasure? Your treasure is your money. We all know that. But it's more than just your money. Have you ever heard the saying, time is money? Time is money. In fact, that's why most of us get paid. We don't do any real work. We just give time. That was a joke. We do do work. But the point is that your treasure is your time, your talent, and your money. And so where you put your treasure, there your heart will be. And so if you want your heart to be in the heavens and be caring about other people's spiritual condition, then you need to give your, your time, your talent, and your money and energies and thought process to spiritual realities. And I think we all kind of get what I'm saying here. I know that this also is true in the natural world. There was a time gone by a couple weeks ago where I was really into this sport. It's really wonderful. It's called pickleball. And I spent a lot of time at this sport. And I found myself really concerned and interested about the different dynamics of the sport and how other people were doing. And I'd find myself coaching other people and trying to help them in the sport. Trying to coach them. Your top spin needs to be improved. These kind of things. I won't go into details. You don't know what I'm talking about. 
But the point is, I was very interested in the sport and its various dynamics and how people played the sport. But as I pulled back, because I had to grow up and take care of my family, then I suddenly found myself caring less about how people did on a pickleball court, right? Because it doesn't matter, because it's just a silly hobby. And so here's the question. When it comes to other people's spiritual life, are you like I hope to be with pickleball, namely, I could care less how any of you play pickleball? Is that how you feel, though, about people's spiritual life? That you are interested in just about anything and everything about how they are doing, but you never get around to spiritual things because you're really not into spiritual things. And hence, you don't care about how other people's spiritual condition is. And that is you, then your heart is not right. And you are not reflecting the apostolic practice here and the apostolic condition that he rejoiced that he found Christians doing well. That was what he desired more than just about anything else, was to see the people of God prospering and walking in the truth as God had commanded. Now, on a little side note, I want to look at, again, look at verse 4. And even though we know that the Apostle John is specifically talking about Christians walking in the truth, I want you to look at the actual literal language that he uses. He says, I rejoice greatly that I found some of your children walking in the truth. And so we see this idea here of the joy of children walking in the truth. I want you to think about that. As you think about the goals and aspirations you have for your children, what greater thing would you rejoice in that your children are walking in the truth? They could be prospering in their music career. They could be beautiful and gorgeous. They could be rich and famous. But what would that matter if they're not prospering spiritually and that they are not walking in the truth? Jesus told us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Well, that shouldn't just be true for us. That should be true for all people. And so our goal should be producing children who become disciples who will seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness so that we too can rejoice at our children walking in the truth. Now, if somebody were to observe how you spend your treasure, your time, your talent, your efforts when it comes to parenting your own children, would they see that the emphasis of your attitude and your efforts is to see your children one for the Lord? To see even if they are one for the Lord, then not only would they be one, but they would be seeking first the kingdom of God. That should be the case. It should be that somebody just observing fairly and accurately could see that this is your passion. Why? Because it's going to produce your greatest joy. But that's only the case, once again, if your heart is right with the Lord. This idea of wanting to see our children prosper is found throughout the Bible. One of my favorite verses is Malachi chapter 4 which gives this prophecy about sending Elijah, which we know was John the Baptist. And he says in that passage that he's going to send Elijah, and Elijah is going to bring revival to the land, lest when Messiah comes, he were to strike the entire land and kill them all. You see the idea? The reason why Jesus sent John the Baptist was to prepare the people for his coming so there, were, there was a people that were ready for him, lest he destroy them all. Now, what's interesting, though, if you go into Malachi chapter 4, is it doesn't actually say to bring revival. It describes the outcome of revival. 
that make sense? It describes what revival looks like. And here's what it describes in verse 6. He, that's John the Baptist, slash Elijah, shall turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the heart of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So what does revival look like for a parent who has children? What does it look like? It looks like the heart of the father, you can add mother here, being turned to the heart of their children. If God gets a hold of you, he's going to get a hold of your family, or at least your desires and your heart for your family. Because if you love someone, you want to see the best thing for them, the best thing for your children is that they follow the Lord. And also, it's interesting here, talking about children who grow up in Christian homes, if God gets a hold and revives your children, it will be turned back to their father. They will honor their father and their mother. They will not see their father and mother as some tyrannical force keeping them from doing all the things that they want to do, which is the way I looked at my parents. When I was a bad little 15-year-old, parents were stopping me from doing what I wanted to do. But really, they were just God's government over me to restrain my evil. And by the way, that parents becomes replaced with spouses in the government. Do we view those things as tyrannical forces keeping us from having our fun or as God's instruments of restraining evil? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 tells fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This is what we should be doing for our families in order to be the means that God uses to convert our children. Something that really concerns me sometimes, and it's never really said, but it seems to be an undergrumble sometimes in Reformed churches, is this attitude that there's nothing that you can do to have any positive effect on the outcome of the salvation of your children. If they're elect, they're elect. We can do nothing. But that's not true. The reality is God uses means. We don't act like this when it comes to people outside of our homes. I don't need to evangelize them because God's going to do what he's going to do. No, we don't do that. We look for means and strategies. And we evangelize them, hoping that God will use our efforts and set them on fire with his Holy Spirit to draw people and to bring them in. We should have every hope and belief that the God who told us to nurture and admonish our children will use those very efforts to save those very children. Why don't you think about that? God placed those children in your home, in your church, in your community, and instructed you to nurture and admonish them in order to use you as the means to save some of them. We should have every confidence that we're not doing these things in vain. Our labors are not in vain. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says this, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. How often should you be catechizing and teaching your children about the Lord? All the time. It should never end. Continuously. If you think, maybe I'm being obsessive. That's what this passage talks about. Being obsessive. And constantly doing these things. And Jeremiah 32, the promise of the everlasting covenant, that's the new covenant, comes with this promise. I will give them one heart, one way that they may fear me forever, for the good of them, and for their children after them. 
the promise of the new covenant is to do you good and to do good for your children after them by instructing them. Now, I want to, one more time, look at the language found in verse 4. I want to point something out. Let's look back to verse 4. I rejoice greatly that I found some of your children walking in the truth. Notice, the person talking is not the parent. Do you see that? I rejoice that I found some of your children. This means that this person is a third party looking into someone else and rejoicing that they're finding those children that aren't their own walking in the truth. And so now, we can address... Other people's children. Before I was talking about parents. What about people that don't have kids or people that kids are grown up or whatever? They too can rejoice to find some of the children of other people walking in the truth. And really, that is what the church should be doing. And that is, by the way, what this church and what churches do. And praise the Lord for that. How often are people serving children in order to see them? We're not just killing time. Hopefully, Awana... And children's Sunday school is not just an expression of anti-childrenness, and we just don't want the children around, so he puts them in the corner. That's not what it's about. Sometimes, in some churches, that is what it's probably about, right? But hopefully that's not what it's about here. Hopefully we're actually putting them in a water in Sunday schools because we are trying to help out parents, to bless children, and to raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And again, I thank all of you who have participated in those ministries. And I would ask you to continue to do that because you can be a part of this. You can have an impact on people's children so that we one day can all rejoice to find some of the children of the church and some children walking in the truth. Last thing I'll say about this is if you ever want to help out any parents, I can volunteer my kids to you. So if you ever say, I want to catechize children, Come on over. I'll feed you, and you can catechize. If you want to teach them stories, songs, come on over. I'm sure other parents would volunteer their kids, but I will volunteer mine. Join in in this adventure as this mission that we can all one day rejoice in seeing some of our children walk in the truth. All right, let's look at the latter part of verse 4. He not only rejoices that he sees some of the Christians walking in the truth, but he then describes their walking in the truth as something that we have received a commandment from the Father. What's being described here is the fact that the gospel isn't just a message. What does gospel mean? Anybody know what gospel means? Good news. I think I heard it. Some people said it's a genre of music. It's that too, but it primarily means good news. It's a message. But it's not just a message. It's also an offer. It's a promise and a command. And oftentimes people forget that part. They get some of it, but not all of it. Hyper-Calvinists say that the gospel is just a command. But it's not just a command. But it is a command. But it's not just a command. And sometimes people, at least practically, act as if the gospel is just a message. And just a promise and just an offer. And they never get around to commanding people to repent. You're not just to communicate the gospel as in a bunch of facts, take it or leave it, but you're to command people to obey and to repent and to trust in the Lord. And we see this in Acts chapter 17. Paul preaches, In the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. As you are sharing the gospel, 
And Lord willing, we'll have a Sunday school about how to share the gospel, how to better communicate the gospel. But hopefully we're all people who are able to communicate the gospel. And as you communicate the gospel to children, to adults, to anybody and everybody, part of that presentation should be commanding people to repent. Because the gospel is a command. And that's why some places in the Bible it talks about we are saved by obedience. And the obedience is talking about the obedience of faith, the obedience of obeying the command to repent and to believe. The gospel is not just facts. It is an absolute command, a call to action. You are being summoned by the king to report to duty, to repent of your sins, and to believe. We see this in the very first presentation of the gospel, at least recorded in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching the gospel. Peter says to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. Be baptized. These are all imperatives. He's calling them to action. These are commanding words. And then in verse 40, he goes on, it goes on to say, and with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourself from this corrupt generation. You see both things. He testified. He testified about the truth. He testified about the things that he saw. He testified about his experience. But he didn't just stop there. But he went on to command and exhort them to save themselves from this corrupt generation. So as you preach the gospel, make sure that people feel you pleading on them. Now, we've got to be careful here. And again, people always are falling off a horse from one side to another. They go to extremes. What we don't want to do is pressure people through peer pressure and try to manipulate them into the kingdom. We don't want to do that. Because you pressuring somebody and someone just saying, this person's weird, i got to get out of here, I'll do you a quick little prayer so I can leave, won't save anybody. But at the same time, it shouldn't just be a mere presentation. And you just walk away. You should try to close the deal. Ask them, repent. Will you repent? Will you believe? And leave it up to the Holy Spirit. Leave it up to them. Plead with sinners. Command them to repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 5. He goes on to say, And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which you had from the beginning, that we love one another. So notice here in our text, he's not only pleading, we already applied this idea of pleading with sinners to repent, but now it goes on not to plead with sinners to repent, but rather plead with Christians to obey the commandments of God. So we plead with unbelievers to become believers, and we plead with believers to be more obedient. That means we're pleading people. We have a lot of people to plead with. But here's the deal. You cannot plead with someone who's never around. They have to show up for you to plead with them. They have to come to church. But it's not just about church, and I've been reminded of that recently. It's not just when people are at church, but we need to develop relationships with people. Because you're not, you cannot plead with someone that are not there. So there's a whole bunch of ways that we can go about and be better at getting into each other's lives so that we can plead with one another. And one way is after church is over, I understand sometimes... Cracker Barrel and Chick-fil-A are calling. It's time to go. I understand. But not all the time. Sometimes, maybe, eat before you show up. Sometimes, bring a snack. 
That's what I'm saying. One way that we can better have relationships so that we can do this pleading with one another is when church is over, stick around. Sometimes it might be awkward. Be awkward. What do you think it's like being me? Awkward. You got to hang with it. You got to go with it. Sometimes stick around so that we can better develop relationships with one another. And as you stick around or as you just communicate with people, sometimes, as our brother Stan did a whole Sunday series about this, we have to challenge one another and be able to ask deeper questions, to ask, how are you doing spiritually? What are some of the things that you're struggling with? These kind of probing questions. Most of us don't have a problem with prying too much, so just a little exhortation here would go a long way, that we can do this. Also, sometimes we need to be people who just share. How are you doing? Maybe an invitation especially depending on who you're talking to, to share more. If you're doing bad, if something awful happened, if three weeks ago somebody died and you're struggling with how is God good, don't say I'm doing okay. Maybe you can say I'm struggling. Don't make someone pry you open every time. Just do a little peek and see what happens and see if they're willing to follow up with that. Have deeper conversations. This is the way that we can develop relationships so we can better plead with one another to obey the commands of God. I cannot plead with you if I don't have a relationship with you. Another way we can do this is by opening up our homes, having people over, hospitality. We get to know people when they're in our homes, eating our food, talking, singing songs, so forth and so on. When is the last time you've had someone over your house? If it's been a long time, invite somebody over. Considering looking at your calendar and making time for people. Here's the bottom line. You cannot plead with someone to follow the commands of God if you never see them. Exhortation presupposes information. Information presupposes observation or communication. You get what I'm saying? You have to be around them, develop a relationship with them, and to see what's going on to be able to properly exhort them into the right direction. This is what it means to be a Christian, to make time for people, to love people, to be a community of love and to fellowship with one another. Verse 5 goes on to say, not only does he plead with them, but he pleads with them to do something. Namely, not something new, but something old. Something that they already have known. And that thing is to love. We are to love one another. This is that thing that is not new, but it's very, very old. This thing is so old, it's been written on our hearts when we were born. God put his moral law in our hearts to know that we are to love one another. And when we were regenerated, if you have been regenerated, he also wrote this in our hearts in a special way. It's etched on who we are. This same commandment to love has also been placed on two tablets of stone in the days of Moses, the Ten Commandments. It's the commandment to love. One tablet of the Ten Commandments spoke about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The other commandment spoke about loving your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus was asked in Matthew chapter 22, what is the great commandment? What did he say? What is the greatest commandment? Anybody know? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. These are the great commandments. These are how we are to live. In Micah 6a, he says, I have told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. What does God really want from you? What does God want from your life? To be a just person. To not oppress people. To love kindness. To be nice to people. And to walk humbly with your God. The great commandment is to love God and to love one another. 
The center of the universe is love because God is a God of love. And the center of us should be having that God of love inside of us spewing out rivers of living water full of love. Now, this doesn't mean that everybody will always think well of you. Sometimes they won't. There will always be that hater, that person who misunderstands you, that person who thinks bad thoughts about you for no good reason, right? We all have that person. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says, If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. There's only so much you can do, right? You can do so much, and other people sometimes will always continue to be your critic and simply misunderstand you. But here's the deal. If it's a few people who misunderstand you, that's one thing. If everybody misunderstands you, maybe everybody's properly understanding you. Maybe the problem is your own perception, right? Maybe the problem is anybody else. Maybe the problem is you. We should be people of love, and this should be our top priority. When you think about how can I grow in the Lord? How can I become a more dedicated Christian? How can I become more serious? In some churches, every Sunday, they call you down to the altar to rededicate your life to the Lord. I'm somewhat glad that we don't do that. Because truthfully, everybody should be rededicating the Lord all the time, right? It's kind of weird. Rededicate your Lord. You always should do that. So if you think about how can I be a better Christian, how can I love the Lord more? Well, top, on the top priority of that list should be to love more. Because all of this, the commandment to love, encompasses every single commandment. All the commandments are fulfilled by the commandment to love. Now, some might be thinking, I am a shy person, so I get a pass somehow. But shy people don't get a pass at all, right? Shy people need to love and be kind to people just like anybody else. Just like bold people also need to show love. If you can show cruelty and meanness, you can show love. And shy people can show cruelty and, mean, and be mean, and so they can too show love. It doesn't matter. We need to show love in some way. Jesus said in John chapter 13, by this... All will know that you are my disciples. Who knows the rest of that verse? How is it that we're supposed to, the word is supposed to know that you are a true Christian? Is it what comes out of your mouth? Or is it what comes out of your heart? We know the end of that verse. You will know, the word will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The community of Christ should be a community of love. In verse 6, he says, this is love. This is love that we walk in in according to his commandments. Now, this is very important here because we, if we don't recognize that love is defined by the word of God, we will just make it up ourselves and we'll just do whatever is right in our own minds. But this is very dangerous because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Love isn't just what feels right, but love is based on the word of God. I'll give you an example. Here's a thought experiment. God forbid this ever happened. You wake up, you hear someone smashing through your window. You look up and you see a giant silhouette coming in your house. Right? Somebody's breaking your house in the middle of the night. Every man has prepared for this. Maybe. If you haven't, you might want to think through this thought experiment. It does happen. So you see that silhouette coming in your house, right? No normal person breaks through your window in the middle of the night coming through your house. So this is a bad person. You have a safe right next to your bed because every man has planned through this scenario. You have two things in your safe. You have cash and a Glock. Which one do you grab? You grab the cash. Here's the cash. I love you. You grab the Glock. Here's two to the chest. I love you. Which one do you do? 
What's the right answer? Well, maybe the Word of God has something to tell us. I think it's the Glock, personally. And here's why. Exodus chapter 22, verse 2 says, If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for his shedding of blood. Sounds like the Word of God gives us clarity on this issue. See, if you're just thinking all by yourself, you might conclude, run out and give him a hug. Try to give him the gospel as he beats you up and vandalizes your house and hurts everybody inside. But the Word of God gives us clarity. It tells us how to love. And to love is not, in that scenario, to go and give the guy flowers, but to protect your family and protect your life. That's what it means to love. And that's kind of a humorous example, but there's some not-so-humorous examples. What does it mean to love when we have an entire culture that has distorted what love is? Anybody know what the phrase same love refers to? Anybody know what that is? You don't have to say it out loud. We know what it is, right? How do you love that? Do you love that by affirming that? Do you love that by saying it's okay? By glorifying it to trying to normalize that? How do you love if you live in Sodom and Gomorrah? How do you love if you live in the South where slavery is okay? How do you love when the culture has got it wrong and the culture says that which is good is evil and that which is evil is good? How do you love then? You don't love by just trusting your heart. You love by standing on the word of God and knowing what love actually calls you to do. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20 says, To the law and to the testimony, if you do not speak according to this word, it's because they have no light in them. Love is following the commandment of God. Love is standing on the word of God. And sometimes, actually following love looks like hate. Sometimes it's not going to feel good. Sometimes it's going to feel bad when somebody calls you to celebrate that which you cannot celebrate. When your sister or your friend says, I did something I shouldn't have done, and I ended up pregnant, and I need you to take me to a Planned Parenthood. And you're my friend. I can only trust you, and we can't tell our parents, right? What does love call you to do there? It calls you to stand up for the truth, but it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to say, I can't do this. I can't be there for you. I cannot participate in this wicked act that you're doing. Love is defined by the word of God, not by your feelings. Sometimes doing the right thing doesn't feel like the right thing, and it's a hard thing. But we need to stand on the word of God. Not only is love obeying the word of God and doing as God commands, but love also is doing the right thing in the right way. Sometimes you can do the right thing in the wrong way, right? You can do the right thing in the wrong way. We need to love by not just doing the right thing, but doing it in the right attitude. Think about some of the people who stand up on college campuses and all they do is insult people the whole time, just yelling at people, calling them a bunch of names. Never get to the good news. They never get to the gospel. They're evangelizing just by making everybody mad. And people go and punch them in the face or something like that. And then, oh, I'm being persecuted for Jesus. Maybe you're being persecuted because you're being a jerk. Because you're being unkind. We don't just need to do the right thing, but do it in the right way. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, it says, Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So the law of God not only tells us what to do, but it tells us how to do it and to do it in a loving way. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. That's the very end of verse 6. Now look at that last part. Did you catch it? Not only did he define what love is, but he then goes on and tells you that you should walk in that very thing. This isn't a commandment just to agree. 
Amen. We should love, Pastor. No, no, no. It's not just enough to agree, but you need to do it. You need to walk it out. I was just talking to a friend of mine, and they were telling me about their schedule, and they said every day they get off work, they go for a walk for 45 minutes. And when they said this, I imagine what they meant was they leave the house and move their legs for 45 minutes and return back to the house, i.e. they actually walk. What I did not imagine is what they were actually doing was sitting on the couch thinking about walking. Because sitting on the couch thinking about walking is not walking. Some of you have little smart watches, right? And they track your steps. Anybody have that? Anybody ever had any steps calculated when you sat on the couch? If you did, turn it back. Because it's not right. You're not doing any steps while you sit on the couch. Walking requires you to move. Not just thinking about walking. Walking is not encouraging other people to go for a walk. Walking is not you turning on the idiot box. I don't even want to start here. Anybody know what the idiot box is? I'm going to move on. You turn on the idiot box and watch other people walking. That's not walking. Walking requires you to get up and you to move. And so here he says that you should walk in it. You should walk in love. Not simply agree with it. Not simply think about it. Not simply watch other people do it. But you should walk in love. You should move. You should get out. And you should love. Do not be just a hearer of the law, but be a doer of the law. Now you might say, but you don't understand, my church is full of hypocrites. That doesn't have anything to do with anything. It doesn't matter if everyone else is full of hate. In fact, you should expect everyone else to be full of hate because the world is full of darkness. You need to love anyways. If your church or anywhere else is full of darkness, then shine your light. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to God. And one of the primary ways that we can do that is by loving. There is never an excuse not to love. Our passage doesn't say anything about you should walk in it unless. Do you see that? Look at verse 6. Do you see the word unless in your Bible? It's not there. We are, command, we are commanded to love. And as we bring this sermon to a close, let me just remind you, thank God that God didn't simply walk in love unless. Unless you were mean. Unless you were unkind. Unless you were unworthy. Because truth be told, we are all unworthy. God did not first see that we became worthy to be loved, but the Bible says that we love because he first loved us. If you go over to Romans chapter 5, it says, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is our model, a God who loves who loves the unworthy, who loves the wicked, who loves people that don't deserve your love. Everybody doesn't deserve your love. We're all sinners. We all violate each other. We all do these things. But let us model Jesus Christ, who loved despite being surrounded by ungrateful sinners that deserve nothing but hell. Let us thank God that he died for us, that he rose again for our justification. He sent ambassadors, whether that be your parents or anybody else, that presented you that, that beautiful gospel and pleaded with you to be saved. If you have never come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, come to him. Believe in him. Repent of your sins. If you haven't come to know Jesus, have you come to know your sins? Do you recognize that you're a sinner? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Do you recognize that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Repent of your sins, trust in him, and be born again. Receive 
his salvation. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let today be the day you come to Jesus Christ. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God of love. We thank you that even though we were undeserving, we were unappreciative, that you loved us despite us. Lord, help us to be people of love. Help us to be firm in a world that is so confused, a world that tries to twist sin and being kind and affirming that which is evil when we should do no such thing. Help us to stand on your word and be true people of love, people of love and people of truth. We pray in Jesus' name.